Hi, you're listening to a podcast of the best bits of Breakfasters for week ending July 28th. We're on Triple R every weekday morning from 6 till 9am, broadcast live from Melbourne, Australia. Coming up on this podcast, we speak with Shankari Chandran, winner of this year's Miles Franklin Award with her novel Chai Time at Cinnamon Gardens. Nat shares some novel ways to increase our incidental exercise and beloved Triple R broadcaster, co-founder and artistic director of the 86, Woody McDonald, joins us to talk about the 86, a monumental new festival that celebrates Melbourne and its love of music. Simone Yaboldi reviews all three hours of Christopher Nolan's latest film, Oppenheimer, while I get in hot water for lying at the candy bar seeing Barbie this week. And Fee Wright reviews Anna Fundus' latest work, Wifedom, Mrs Orwell's Invisible Life, a hybrid of biography, memoir and literary detective work. We're joined by song and dance specialist and director of new musical, Bloom, Dean Bryant, but we head into the weekend with restaurant critic Michael Harden, dipping into some lesser celebrated cuisines. Melbourne's own Triple R. <laughs> Food interlude, it's the eating curious Michael Harden. Welcome. Thank you very much. Good morning. Uh, now, you're always out and about. Uh, we can't possibly keep track of everything that you get up to, so we look forward to you filling us in. Yes, w- yes. What, what does catch your culinary fancy this um, time? Well, you know, this it's a busy time of year, this time of year, because it's uh, um, reviewing season in a way. So it's kind of like an eye review for a couple of guides I review for um, – the Gourmet Traveller Restaurant Guide, and I also review for Good Food. Um, and so you're kind of out a lot. And it's kind of it, – it can be a little exhausting, but it's hard to um, complain about it to anybody <laughs> else but food writers because otherwise people are go when you go, oh, I have to go and eat at Attica. <laughs> and, and it's just sort of – and then you realise that you sound like a complete wanker, so you better just talk to your colleagues and leave everybody else alone. But um, – but, uh, yeah, it's, so you get to see – it's like it's really good because you do get to see an overview of what's going on. You know, you kind of see the lists of everything. And, you know, when you review restaurants, that like with, with the listing information, they always want you to name a category um, for each restaurant. So, you know, it's sort of like there's – you know, it's like it can be Chinese or it can be French or it can be, you know, what, Vietnamese. Um, but a lot of the time it's that those, those things are starting to blur a little bit because it's – I think as the Melbourne food scene sort of – moves on there's there's like a label that everybody says it's like contemporary used to be called modern australia now Mm. it's contemporary and it's like this hold all because because of the way that our culture our cuisine is and because we've got such a multicultural society all of the different cultures are starting to blend and meld together and so a lot of the time you're looking at something you go well yeah okay the, the chef has a chinese background but he's cooking french food and but also bringing in some of his ethnic heritage into his cooking as well so what do you call it oh let's call it contemporary so you know it's sort of like seeing a lot of those things going on but um what i guess what sort of interested me the most is that some of the meals that i've enjoyed the most over the last 12 months have been from cuisines that aren't in those major categories you know it's sort of like you you know it's like chinese french italian you know are kind of the, the bigger ones alongside contemporary but um I think some of the ones that sort of see these new cuisines that are coming in. So, you know, I thought I'd, I'd cover a couple of those. And um, the one that I was sort of, that I'm, you know, it's on top of my favourite list at the moment is a, a restaurant called Manze. It's been around for a while. It cooks Mauritian food. It's in, um, uh, I think it's, yeah, it's Errol Street in North Melbourne. And um, it is absolutely superb food. I 
absolutely loved it. Number one, um, I just found out uh, this weekend by going there that they do on a Saturday, uh, Friday and Saturdays, I think, or maybe even on a Sunday, they do a express lunch, which is two courses for $30, and it's an absolute bargain. And what decade food... is this? I know. Yeah. <laughs> I know. And it's like it's this very cool. So Mauritian food is like a um, – it's known as a – it's like one of the Creole – cuisines because it's sort of like it's a mixture of different things from Mauritius so you've got a lot of particularly the main I guess the main influences influences are South Asian and East African but there's also a French influence in there as well so what you come up with is this like superb melding of like beautifully um, delicately not always delicately but sometimes robustly but really finessed spicing so the levels of heat for example will get to a certain level and then they stay there on a particular hum you know it's kind of like they don't get they don't get hotter and hotter like some cuisine so it's like this spicing that's kind of really really finessed I love it so like there was things like you know and it's just like really delicious food like you know the part of this this that I had the other day, there was like a, a taro, really crunchy taro fritter, and it was served with this um, rhubarb hot sauce, which wow. is so delicious. It was sort of like, you know, crunchy, sort of that sort of potato starchy thing, and then sort of this really acidic but quite hot sauce to go with it. There was like the main thing that they did was this unbelievably beautifully cooked pork neck that came with a coriander seed and black peppercorn sauce and just sort of some greens over the top of it and that was served with some rice and with this like amazing little savoy cabbage with quite a sweet dressing on it and stuff so it's kind of like these all of these flavors they're doing and then there's this other one that they did which was it's called a besan grio i think grio is a traditional mauritian dessert and it's sort of like but this one was made a besan is um chickpea mm-hmm. so um this one and it was like a um it was like a fudge, but it was made out of chickpeas, like a caramelly fudge. And then it was served with a salted coconut sorbet and pieces of blood orange. Oh, wow. And it was just like, you know, I, I did, like that wasn't part of the $30 Express, but I just looked at it or, and, the, and the person that, that was um, serving me sort of described it to me and I was like, just bring it. <laughs> Stop talking. <laughs> and, um, and so it's, an, and it's another, one of those, um, another one of those restaurants, um, new, these new restaurants run by young people. Got the, the chef is the owner, Nagesh Satya is his name. He's originally from... Um, Mauritian, he's a Mauritian guy and um, he, uh, like a lot of the dishes that he's cooking are stuff that he ate when he was growing up, stuff that he apparently his mother was a very good cook and so he's kind of incorporating those but he's also worked in a bunch of really kind of, you know, good, like different sort of restaurants, Western and, and he's whatever and so he's got he's got some really great technique and he's got, a, the, the food is just clean and beautiful, the service is great, the room's wonderful, there's like a constant reggae soundtrack that, you know, the day that I was there, that sort of stuff. So it kind of like it's got this really relaxed vibe to it, but at the same time, it's um, it's really it's like really spot on. Like the service is great. The oh. wine list is pretty much all natural, vin natural, which I've decided I'm going to be calling it. For now <laughs> because, um, That's amazing. Know, and I understand yeah. they've been doing some collaborations as well with places like Hope Street Radio, for yes, example. Yes, yeah, they often do that. I think this is the other thing that I'm really enjoying at the moment is that a lot of these young chefs that have, the, that have their own restaurants and stuff, it's all very collaborative and community and they do, they enjoy each other's company. And because of the nature of restaurants, I think a lot of the time um, chefs don't get a lot of time to hang out. 
you know, because they're all working. I mm-hmm. mean, you know, they might sort of, you know, it might be late at night, whatever. So it used to be just kind of award ceremonies where they would get together, you know, be the one night that they'd all be out of their kitchens. But the collaboration thing and the pop-up thing, I think, is is really happening Fantastic. as well. You wouldn't so. know this, but a reggae soundtrack follows you into every room. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. It's my vibe. So... Uh, but uh, yeah, so that was one. The other, the other one at the moment that's probably you know many more people probably may, may know about this, but it's uh, Sarai, which is Filipino restaurant in the city in um, Racing Club Lane. Um, a guy called Ross Manaya is the chef there, um, and it is. Filipino food is on the rise in Melbourne at the moment and it's kind of like I think it's really funny because like five years well it's not funny but it's kind of like it's ironic or something that you know five years ago people just laughed at the idea of Mm. they were like what is Filipino cuisine and the the thing about Filipino cuisine is it's this incredible fusion of all these different influences that have come through the Philippines including the indigenous influence like a lot of the the, the dishes are like cooking techniques and stuff are, are there you've also got you know in in the Philippines it's like Portugal Spain China Malaysia the US and Japan are all influenced as well so you've got all this great palette to draw from and the Filipino food that I've eaten which is you know not not a lot but there's a few restaurants in in Melbourne now and this one I think is um, taking it to the next level um, it's kind of like the, the, there's a lot of big flavours. It's really robust. It's kind of like but sort of deliciousness. And as far as I'm concerned, any cuisine that can make me cheer for pineapple in a savoury <laughs> dish is doing something right. So that is my, my one piece of advice for if you're eating at Sarai, if there's pineapple in the dish, Get it. Get it. Right, it's right. Like it is really good. <laughs> Degree of he, difficulty. He right. has, a, he has a, um, a wood fire there as well, so a lot of the time he's using, he's charring the pineapple and stuff, so he's using it like, you know, he used it with a, um, there's, he has a great dish that's um, called a, it's a spice rubbed pork belly and it's served with this palaga which is like a salsa which is made which is like made like pineapple is its main thing so it's sweet and it's smoky and it's salty at the same time and and you know pork and pineapple is like a match made in heaven so um it's a really good thing and like sarai again has um it's it's pretty much all natural wine list but they also do a um some really good cocktails that are using a lot of you know tropical ingredients there's a lot of pandan and sort of and specific Filipino liqueurs and stuff that he's got in to put in his cocktails. So um, it's, a, it's a great one as well. Oh, now I'm like, you're like, shut up, stop talking. <laughs> yeah. just go down. <laughs> All right, so we've been to Mauritius and yep. the Philippines. Yeah, the other one that I'm kind of interested in um, at the moment, it's sort of like it w- w- won't sound all that you know, out there, but it's kind of like it's um, Con Christopoulos's new Greek restaurant in the city called Caffeneon. And the reason that I'm mentioning that one is because it is very different to most how we see most Greek food in um, Melbourne, which is, you know, there's a lot of souvlakis and there's a lot of, you know, dips and all those sort of things. There is absolutely nothing wrong with any of that food. Like wow. souvlakis are absolutely brilliant. But the food at Caffeneon is more sort of, it's like, in a way, home style, but it's more like the kind of food that you would find in a neighbourhood restaurant in Athens. Like, it seems really particular to me. And um, the, it's delicious. The room is beautiful. It's like it's where he used to have a jewellery shop slash bar slash cafe called Self-Preservation at the top end of Burke Street. Mm. And he's used that space to turn it in. It's actually only a pop-up, so um, it's going to be there for winter. And then he's turning it into a sushi train. <laughs> oh, my God. A lot 
going on there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's sort of like, you know, we've, we've got influences coming at us right, left and centre. But uh, but the, the food in Cafe Neon, it's kind of like it's very traditional, very homey um, Greek food. Like, you know, there's they've, they've got three soups, for example, that they'll, they'll serve late into the night so you can go and get supper there. But there's like a fish soup and they've got a chicken soup. But the one that I love is the offal soup that they're doing, which is like really Moorish and, and rich, full flavoured, that sort of stuff. And there's things like, you know, really beautiful, like simple dishes, like beautiful baked vegetables that have been baked in tomato and things like that. He has like an amazing um, side dish, which is um, fresh peas with artichokes and lemon and dill. And it's sort of like a lot of braising, a lot of slow cooking, you know, a bit of seafood, a bit of meat, that sort of stuff. And it's kind of, it's really different um, to a lot of the Greek food that we like. And I love the fact that it's added another layer to our understanding of what Greek cuisine can be. I did not have awful soup on my Michael Harden bingo card today. <laughs> uh, is there anywhere else you want to take us? Uh, the other one I think that, that that is sort of definitely everybody worth checking out is Big Esso at Federation Square, which is uh, Norni Barrow's place. She's originally from the Torres Strait Islands, from a, an island called Mer Island. And she has re- really been this amazing champion for um, Indigenous ingredients and styles of cooking and kind of even attitude, I think, you know, it's kind of she's got a cafe over in um, Yarraville. I think it's Yarraville, or is it Seddon? Over over in the west, um, called Marbo Marbo. And um, Big Esso is her more, it's kind of more restauranty, I guess. It's sort of like it's definitely more ambitious. Um, but she, but it still has this really nice, casual, kind of bright, friendly kind of attitude. Big, Big Esso is um, an expression in Torres Strait Islands that means the biggest thank you. So, um, you know, which is kind of you're coming from a good place. So, uh, and doing things like, you know, just, just, Beautiful things like, you know, a bucket full of char-grilled prawns that's like tossed with sea succulents and then served with a hot sauce. And she makes a lot of hot sauces herself. So, again, pineapple features. There's a really good pineapple pineapple hot sauce and, um, and she does things like with green tomatoes and that sort of stuff. Um, really like, you know, she uses things like warrigal greens with a saltbush damper and then, you know, with a little golden syrup on the side. And, you know, really interesting combinations, you know, that she does an emu liver parfait, um, which is, you know, absolutely fantastic. Like things like periwinkles that are steamed with lemongrass and ginger and those sort of stuff. So it's kind of that really beautiful blend of northern, like northern Australian cuisine that often has like quite what we would say an Asian kind of, you know, use of ingredients and stuff. But of course it does because it's that's the region. <coughs> yes. So, you know, it's kind of like it just it's just the, the way that it should be. So All right, um, you're going to have to whip through these names quickly. Yes. Uh, <laughs> can you can you summarise, bring us the... Where, where, give us those restaurant titles one more time. Okay, we're going to go. Uh, the first one is Manze, M-A-N-Z-E, in North Melbourne. There's Sarai, which is Filipino. That's in um, the city in Racing Club Lane. Um, Cafe Neon, which is the top end of Burke Street, which is the sort of Athenian Greek food. Um, and then Bigger, so which is in Federation Square, which you've got you sort of um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander uh, kind of ingredients and cooking and attitude. Amazing. Michael Thank Harden, you so much. the embodiment yeah. of finesse spicing. Uh, thank you very much. <laughs> you. Independent Melbourne Radio 3 Triple R. Shankri Chandran is the author of The Barrier, Song of the Sun God and Chai Time at Cinnamon Gardens, which this week won Australia's most significant prize for fiction, the $60,000 Miles Franklin Literary Award. And on the line from Sydney, following the ceremony, an announcement that the author has finally realised is real, the 2023 <laughs> Miles Franklin winner joins us now. Shankri, welcome to Breakfasters. 
Good morning. Thanks so much for having me, guys. It's oh, how, good morning. such a pleasure for us. Um, your publisher described that your novel as a Trojan horse. In, in what way is it a Trojan horse, do you think? It's a Trojan horse in that when you look at it, it's pretty, the cover is pretty and cute. It's sweet. It's almost twee. <laughs> and so you, pick, so you pick it up thinking you're going to read a quirky novel about a, a group of eccentric residents at a nursing home. By page 10, you're like, oh, God, okay, there's more to this <laughs> than I thought. And, so, um, and it, so it explores some of the darker themes of life in Australia, but also hopefully couched within a lot of love and humour and, and the sort of wonder of this community at a nursing home. Absolutely. And you have, your writing is, of course, an extraordinary gift to all of us and you have described it as a, an endless love letter to your community and to your children and the, the setting itself which you mentioned the nursing home was very much inspired also by personal experiences. Can you talk a little bit about how your fiction yeah, does represent that uh, love to community and celebration of community? Yeah, absolutely. I think with writing for me, because we as a, my ancestral community, I feel like I have so many communities. My <laughs> ancestral community that we've left, you know, we've left Sri Lanka and this is writing as a way of, of creating connection with that community and of, of preserving our identity here within Australia and making sure that my children and future generations are aware of where we've come from, but also my community is Australia and the wider community here. And so it's my way of having a conversation with Australia and contributing to Australia. Absolutely. Because, yeah, that is like you do speak a lot to uh, what it means to be Australian and different ideas of race and racial identity. Yeah, can you speak more to that? Yeah, absolutely not. It's, for me, with writing, it's been my way of understanding race. Um, you know, these are difficult issues in Australia at times, race, identity, and what it means to be Australian and who gets to decide and the way that identity is created to include some people but also to exclude others. And I think fiction is a really safe space to, to do that because you invite the reader in and you can have a conversation about it and we can all kind of check our emotions and egos at the door and try to work it out together through fiction. And so I hope with my writing that I really invite readers into that space to have that conversation lovingly. In what way is it a novel of Western Sydney, do you suppose? Because the nursing home itself is set in is set in in Western Sydney, which is a place that, although I grew up in Canberra, I've spent so much of my life and my childhood in, uh, and early adulthood in Western Sydney, where my extended family lived. And so there's a very large Sri Lankan Tamil community there, and also so many other um, communities of diverse cultures. And so it is this very vibrant place. And um, and I, I hope that I've sort of draw, depicted that in, in all its wonder and all its many nuances. And what about the Sydney media ecosystem? Does that play into the novel in terms of the, the discussions that go on in Sydney media? Yeah, 100%. Look, I, I take a bit of a swing at Australian media. I hope you don't mind. Um, and in particular, the, the vocal minority within the media that is very good at um, playing to the politics of fear and alarm and using um, rhetoric in order to create division. And so, you know, for some of those representations of media in, in the book, I didn't have to go very hard, far. I really didn't have to make it up. I just had to listen to the media and then um, harness some of that, that pretty, um, pretty vicious rhetoric and then play it out in the novel. 
And now what does this opportunity and recognition do to your previous work? Oh, look, it makes me feel so validated and so accepted um, within Australia and, and the kind of storytelling that I want to do. And there's been a lot of interest in my other work um, and it gives me the confidence to keep writing and to keep feeling that my voice and our stories are valid and valuable and, and a real contribution to Australian literature and Australian culture and the Australian identity. Can I ask as well, because you, you've spoken about that you wrote this book with the idea that it would never be published. Was yes. that, like, how does that compare to writing your other two books? Well, you know, I was, I was incredibly hopeful with my other two books in that my first novel, when I, I wrote it, and and fully hoped that it would be published, and it was rejected on the grounds that, um, or a lot of the feedback when it was rejected, when I wrote Song of the Sun God some 10 years ago now, um, it was rejected on the basis that it was considered by Australian publishers to not be Australian enough. And publishers said to me, look, it's a beautiful story, but we just won't be able to sell it in the Australian market. The Australian market won't buy it. Readers won't be interested. And, you know, 10 years later, that book has been, a, it's been optioned for television. It's being adapted into television with the staff of Bridgerton. Um, it's been republished in Australia through Ultimo Press. And I feel that Australian readers are just as interested in that as they are with brilliant Australian writers like Emily Maguire, uh, you know, and, and Peter Temple and, and Trent Dalton, I, hope, I would hope. So it's been really accepted. My, my other work has now been greatly accepted in Australia as well. And that's just so reassuring for me. Over your three books, have you forged writing habits now? Are you superstitious about your writing in any way? Um, I'm, I'm not so much superstitious, but I definitely have routines that I like to stick to. Um, and, you know, I, we have four children, and so there's a lot of writing takes place in between laundry and pickups and drop-offs um, and forgetting to sign permission notes. So, uh, <laughs> so I, do, I do have to write whenever I can, so I steal these moments of time to write. But at the same time, I, I write on a Friday, so I work Monday to Thursday in sustainability, and then on Fridays I go hard on my novel, and then during the week I try to give myself 20 minutes four times a week <laughs> in order to just do a sprint, a writing sprint, so that I'm, so that world that I'm creating is still very fresh in my mind when I come to sit down on a Friday morning and smash it out. Mm. That's such a cool, tangible hack. I'm going to write that down. <laughs> uh, we also loved sort of hearing in recent conversations about your approach to writing. As you just mentioned, it often comes in sprints, but you've re revealed an interesting mix of planning and discovery in your writing process, the idea of knowing your character's to one extent, and then also writing your way into their histories um, as a way of sort of developing the narrative. Can you speak a little bit about that sense of discovery in your writing? Yeah, look, that, that is one of the most fun parts about writing. Um, and, you know, there's this, you always get this question, are you a pantser or a plotter? <laughs> and, and, I'm a, and I'm a bit of both. And it is, it is a revelation to me with my characters, the ways in which they come alive and want to take the story in a particular direction. And there are so many times when I just have to acknowledge that, um, you know, I have to respect them and just say, okay, what are you, what are you going to do today? You tell me and I will just write it down. I'm not making it up. I'm just going to write it down. I'm going to write down what I see. And that's a really great way of writing. Um, and that's when the writing is happening really fast and furious and it's detailed and you don't even realise what you're doing. Incredible. And now Ultimo Press has the uh, pleasure of your next novel. 
They certainly do. They do, and they've, you know, wonderfully they've re, they've republished my first novel, Song of the Sun God. That's come out with them again, um, and we're going. They're taking me to the UK with with my books, and then next year my next novel will be out with them as well. Beautiful. Well, congratulations on all of it. You have mentioned previously that words are your friends. I'm wondering if the it's sounds you know compared to the blank page fear that so many have that your relationship with words is a gift well obviously it's a gift and in this instance a sixty thousand dollar gift what is the what what is your relationship with words in light of this prize do you think Oh, look, that's, it's, I'm, I am first going to say to you that I don't think of words as a gift. Oh, I don't think of my abilities with words as a gift, but rather something that is a skill that all of us, if we, you know, when I, I feel like I get better at it because I'm practicing every day. Um, and so more of a skill and less of a gift, but thank you for saying that. And words are absolutely my friends, and I feel so loved by them. Do you know, the blank page is terrifying. It is absolutely <laughs> terrifying for all of us. Um, but once I have, you know, summoned the courage and to jump in or and pushed in by family and friends into that blank page, I feel that the words come. If you trust them, they come, and you've got to meet them part way. Um, and you know, I'm so grateful that they do. I'm so grateful that they're there. Well, Chai Time at Cinnamon Gardens is the winner of the Miles Franklin Literary Award for 2023, and we've been uh, fortunate to speak with author Shankari Chandran. Thanks so much. Thank you for having me. It's been such a great conversation. Triple R. I was a bit inspired after speaking with Scout Boxel, Friday Funny Bugger, last week. She is on – she's just joined a gym. She's got a personal trainer. She's feeling strong. Yes. And I was envious. So I was like, oh, <laughs> what's that like? That sounds great. Filled with energy. So I have – I've been contemplating – contemplating a lot and thinking a lot about maybe joining a gym. So much so that I'm too tired to join the gym. <laughs> well, it's a lot of work preparing from, for a gym. I know from all the visualisation of me in the gym. Yes. Absolutely well, right. I mean, and I've, I understand this is a key component to the whole sporting endeavour is the visualisation. Yeah. So. Um, but I may be having some second thoughts. I was riding home on Friday after the show and it was – particularly maybe tiring ride, a bit of wind, and I was like kind of um, dragging my feet a a little bit. And then I heard the train come and I I ride along the train line home. And then I was like, oh, I'm going to get that. And I saw it was about 150 metres from the train station. So I absolutely sprinted, got there just in time, timed it beautifully, sprint along the road, rode up, the path onto the station, dismounted onto the onto the train. That's a sporting achievement that should be celebrated. Exactly. An everyday Olympic moment. It was incredible. My heart rate was up. I was panting. I felt um, happy, satisfied, like I'd achieved something by getting on the actual train. Um, I rode one stop, I got off, then I pedaled home. Bit of a recovery. A bit of a recovery, that's amazing. And we should also note that these sort of urban adventure racing activities are not unfamiliar to you, are they? You've... No, not at all. And I realised that was maybe the third time that week I had gotten my heart rate up from running for public transport. I am continually feeling hurt by um, MAPS, like Journey Planner. 
I'm like, five minutes. It's like, give me a break. I can do that in three and a half. (laughs) Power walking, then inevitably always having to do at least about a 100, 150 metre sprint to the train. And so I was like, well, there's something in this, you know, we are in a cost of living crisis. Maybe this can be my approach to fitness that if I could just harness this, I'm feeling like, so now I've switched from forget joining the gym. Um, I'm thinking, how can I kind of keep this going? Like, and I think that there's a nap in it. Cause obviously, yes, I cannot continue to just manage my time poorly. Like this cocky sense that I can. But in this, in this kind of context, we should also note that you are an especially active individual. You boot scoot, you're basketballing, you're cycling everywhere. This, oh. These are great, great exercise activities. Yeah, well, more, more of the reason why I think I need to launch a business in the fitness <laughs> and physical world. I see. Because it's like, okay, this is great. I'm motivated now. I'm like, yep, I can shave a minute or two off my journeys. But we all do it to ourselves. You know, maybe our parents did it when we were growing up. You, they put the clock forward five minutes to keep you on time. Has that ever worked for you where you try to deceive yourself about the correct time? It maybe works for a day. Yeah, and then you just adjust. Then everyone just factors it in. <laughs> True. So that's what I'm trying to figure out, how I can avoid with my fitness regime and maybe provide some kind of a system for other people I'm on board. I'm ready to sign up when you're ready. Yeah, when you think you've outsmart, like, outsmarted it, you're like, no, actually, I'll just leave on time today because I don't want to be sweaty and stressed at every social event I go to. I see. But this app would trick you. So I'm thinking it's something that you download. It infiltrates your calendar. <laughs> it has the abil- ability to send messages. So it does consistently have you running late. Yes, uh, what kind of messages does it send you? It's like, where are you? Like, exactly. I see. Raising the stage of stakes of like social encounters because maybe see. you'd be like, Susie won't care if I'm five minutes late. She's always late. But it's like, no, Susie Susie's... does care. Susie says she doesn't. She's already solved the wordle and she's impatient. Yeah. She says she doesn't care, but she's actually going to take this out on you passive aggressively <laughs> for the next month if you don't get there on time. Okay. Maybe it routes you through different parks. It's like, oh, it takes you through the playground, across the monkey bars, through the tunnel. Yes, I see. Somehow we deploy, I don't know, dogs <laughs> onto you to chase you. So this is an emotionally manipulative and physically endangering app. Basically. Potentially. Okay. But we'll have you feeling energised. Um, yeah, so I'm thinking, yeah, maybe some dogs, maybe even like a pickpocket scare to get you through, <laughs> um, they, they would all be actors, so no one would ever re- – and, and trained professionals, obviously, if I were running this app, mm. working title, Blood, Sweat and Tears. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So it doesn't lie about the time. It uh, just – uh, Well, that's the only thing it doesn't lie about. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because I, I don't mind, like – so I'm an alert uh, from – you know it's from the app itself. Mm. Uh, is that right? And so it would say – Susie, uh, don't take Susie's patience for granted. Um, your uh, regular um, tardiness is a character flaw that is noticeable to your friends. Make uh, haste. <laughs> Make haste. Yeah. No, look, I think realistically that is how it would work. In my mind, in the brainstorming phase that I'm at, yeah. I'm still kind of figuring these kinks out 
But You've got actors and stuff. And I've, got, I've got actors. I've got dogs ready to be deployed. So the premise thing. It syncs with your calendar and your contacts. Mm. So you don't know what's real. Mm. So your heart rate's up constantly. <laughs> or a message that says you have a doctor's appointment across town. Uh, perhaps you should leave now. You can't afford right now to get a speeding fine. Exactly. This is the spirit. And then plot twist. There was no doctor's appointment. Uh, <laughs> but your heart rate is right a up. scam. Or you, you'll be incredibly fit, but it may ruin your life. Shame-induced cardio. <laughs> Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. Woody McDonald is a beloved broadcaster, DJ and long-term festival maestro. As former music director of Golden Plains, Meredith, and music curator of Rising Now, the presenter of seminal Triple R shows, Wigwam Band, Primary Colours, and of course The Cave, which only wrapped up this year, has turned his pretty natural talents to the creation of the 86 Festival, named in honour of the tram line that runs through the area. And to tell us about this monumental undertaking, the artistic director and Triple R luminary joins us now. Woody, welcome back to Breakfasters. Good to be here. Thanks for having me, guys. Hey, Woody. Yeah. Uh, so this is why you left? Why I left Triple R? Yeah. No, not necessarily, but I think right now it was probably a good idea. Yeah, it We've been busy it. on this thing, yeah. Exactly. Uh, what have you got yourself into? Tell us about it. Uh, it's like a week-long celebration of kind of Melbourne grassroots music culture, I guess, so with very much based around venues um, and independent happenings, so... Yeah, it's uh, today we announced a big piece, which is the free day. It's called Super Saturday on the 28th of October. But we've also uh, announced, you know, Label Expo. And we've had about 12 international acts announced so far. So I'm trying to remember it all. <laughs> yeah. Massive congratulations. Yeah. We've been so thrilled with all the announcements coming through. It's just an inc- incredible achievement. And when Daniel was mentioning before about all of the events and festivals you've programmed, the 86 feels like a very special one. And I guess it really does have that relationship with geography and place. I've often bumped into you along High Street. 86 is obviously, as you mentioned, a place rich with culture. Can you talk to us about your relationship with it? With the... The 86 and, yeah, the High Street and I guess that, that sort of feeling of how you're bringing Melbourne and music together. Yeah, the 86, I don't know, I guess it, uh, I haven't lived on the 86 up until recently for a long time. I used to live there when I was a kid and then have lived on, I can't bore you with all the tram routes I've lived on and the other ones. But I just think the last few years, High Street, it's like um, a place where people go to make their like dream business, you know, like a lot of these places I look at and I think it's not about the business, it's about some sort of strange idea someone had. And there's, you know, like... I don't know, 90 bars or something along there. It's amazing, just got all their own real personal touch to mm-hmm. it. And I think a lot of the businesses have that spirit. So it's got the feeling of any great high street strip in any city in the world of just people, um, yeah, trying to put something interesting out into the world. Absolutely. Yeah. Beautiful. Yeah, this one-day party, like, sounds incredible. So it's 40 venues, 200 acts, and all free. This is, yes. This is incredible. This kind of reminds me as well, one of the best days I ever went to was um, the High Street Festival. Remember they used to have the billy car down the hill? Down Eastman Great. Street, yeah. Yeah, this, I'm, I'm, I'm feeling this this all-day party revival is, is very welcomed. Do you feel like there's been a gap with these kind of events? Yeah, it'll be a different kind of event, like, because it'll be all about being inside the venues okay. and it will be connected by transport in a way because it's a long strip. But, um, yeah, definitely. Like, the guys from 303 Bar actually probably were the first of the new generation of venues when they open. 
And they, when they opened 303, they said this street needs more trees mm-hmm. and it needs a street party. And so they started that. <laughs> Um, and it just became, I think, just they're hard to manage. Street parties are really expensive. They're hard to manage. Um, and there's not many left, which is sad. But I think this is kind of like a modern version of that. Yeah. It keeps all the, you know, non-rockin' businesses happy too. Yeah. Yeah. What propels you to corral all this talent and chaos? Do you feel an obligation because you have a gift for it? Or talk us through your philosophy, applying your talents to this sort of endeavour. Uh, yeah, I think it's just, um, it's an idea I've always, well, I mean, people, lots of events celebrate this kind of grassroots culture in Melbourne, but it's something I've always felt like we should have a, a marquee event that if you're from say interstate, you know, that's going to be like Melbourne, uh, on steroids or whatever, (laughs) you know what I mean? Like a bit, you know, you can come to a come here and we're we're known for our live music, for our DJ culture, independent labels, all that kind of thing. But you couldn't really say there's like one time where you know it's going to be like a ton of it happening all at once. Mm. And I just always felt like that should happen. Yeah. Yeah. It's going to be an extraordinary experience to be a part of it. And there's obviously way too much to cover in the limited time that we have with you. But can you talk us through a little bit about the different dimensions of the festival? Because, of course, there's the showcase of record labels. There's going to be talks, live podcasts as well, street parties. Can you tell us, yeah, a little bit of an overview from your perspective? Yeah, so starting on the Monday, the 23rd, we've got um, kind of concerts happening. I guess ticketed shows. We've got like Bez from Happy Mondays doing In Conversation. Then we've got a four-night run by Built to Spill, probably in the smallest venue they've played in years. Um, things like Theo Parish, Dennis Boval in residence, uh, Unknown T, a ton of shows happening on that on that level. And then on Saturday will be this big free 24-hour party, uh, which will be, yeah, 40 curators, including Triple R, actually. Triple R is curating the Northcote Theatre uh, on the Saturday. And then the Label Market and the 1-800 Lasagna Curated Food Festival, which will be an outdoor thing, will happen on the Saturday and the label market on the Sunday. Amazing. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Can you tell us about the Independent Music Exchange? Yeah, we realise Melbourne has probably like uh, nearly 100 independent labels. Pretty much all the music here on Triple R gets put out by these people and uh, the rest of the country maybe has 20. So we thought it would be good to get everyone in the same space uh, so the public could meet these people, buy exclusive, you know, merch off them, records, that kind of thing. Um, and, yeah, get people from around the country just together and celebrate their huge contribution to music. Mm. Does it feel like the idea was just sitting there a little bit? The the celebration of the that local area, emphasising the best parts of the town, all of your passions, it's all, all the ingredients are there? Yeah, I think lots of people do it in different ways. This is just our take on it, yeah. you know. So definitely, um, it's definitely there. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and what's your music? I know you you previously said that you listened in transit or whatever. You're such a sort of music polymath. What are your listening habits, especially now, looking at this lineup as well, which is so exhaustive? Uh, I listen to more albums now that I'm not doing the cave every Friday because, hey. you, you know, like you can relate to that Winks. <laughs> you can't listen to the whole album. <laughs> I listen to a lot of radio too, heaps of Triple R and PBS and uh, I listen to all formats really. 
Mm. Yeah, that's fantastic. We get to enjoy Sky High Trio um, expeditions as well across the city, which is amazing. Always DJing amazing music. Oh, yeah, DJing with John Bailey, yep. That's right. And with the the musical program you were talking before about the residencies, Dennis Bovell, the conversations, um, you know, and also Built to Spell performing in, as you said, the smallest venues they have in years. I'm interested in sort of the conversations you were having with the artists and what they're excited to bring as well. Yeah, it takes a bit of wrangling. Like people are often like, let's just do the biggest venue we can fit into. But I always think, band like Built to Spill, they've been around for 30 years, have so much catalogue. And I always think it'd be nice to see sometimes one of those great acts over multiple nights. <laughs> um, because then, yeah, you see them do a very different set. Like they'll always do a couple of different covers every night. Um, Theo Parrish over 12 hours or whatever. It's a very different experience to seeing him do a two-hour set. I, must, I imagine they must be thrilled for the, the opportunity that you're providing here as well. Yeah, definitely. Um, I'm not always, but the people <laughs> that have signed up are into it. And Absolutely. someone like Dennis, you know, he just turned 70 years old and he's done everything from, like, producing the slits to doing, like, the Babylon and Lovers Rock soundtracks to producing, like, yeah, Radiohead and Animal Collective remixes last year. So how do you fit that into 60 minutes? Exactly. You need, you need four nights. Yeah. <laughs> What's a dog parade? I'm not involved in that one too much. <laughs> but that's the 1-800-Lasagna Halloween dog parade. Okay. So it's a Halloween-themed dog parade and costume contest. Because, of course, it takes all place at the end of October, all of this. Yep, a couple of days before Halloween. Yeah. yeah. Amazing. Uh, is there any, do you, have you got your head all around it yet or is it – How's it all swimming? Because you, there's you're splashed everywhere, and I'm interesting also about interested in the communicating to a broad demographic to bring everyone in. Mm. There's sort of like an ironic kind of wink, self self describing the areas like the bonsai belt. Yeah, can you talk to that? Ah, uh, that was just a joke. I know it's a joke. It's a long running joke. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, it's. Uh, what was the question exactly? Well, it's being accessible to everybody and encouraging everyone and reaching yeah. out to literally everyone well that's what the free day is about it's like an invitation to say if you don't go to gigs regularly you can just come down for free and check out like a hardcore gig at the bowls club or go to 24 moons and see a club thing or go see some rembetica at ladadika tavern mm. you might not pay for that experience but if you're sort of there you can just pop your head in but i also think you know the people that go out a lot to gigs will be really excited by this too because you've got 40 great music heads putting together like huge lineups for the day so yeah we want to make it accessible because i guess pretty much everyone listens to music and likes to go out absolutely <laughs> exactly well the 86 the biggest party a tramline has ever thrown hits high street from the 23rd to the 31st of october venues up and down hosting bands djs record label expo pasta pop-ups and all the rest plus the super saturday marquee event with 200 live acts and DJs in over 40 venues. Boy, oh, boy, okay. Uh, and for more information, what would you recommend? Go to the 86.com and make sure you sign up for the free ticket because that's already on sale for free. All right. Uh, beautifully summarised. Woody McDonald, it's very, it's almost unnerving to see the face and the voice in the same room. Uh, it's a great pleasure to have you in this morning. Thanks. Really James. appreciate it. Thanks, guys. <laughs> that's right. Triple R. Simone, you've always completed a mandatory Barbenheimer viewing and is here to talk film. Morning, Simone. Good morning, good morning. <laughs> uh, where have you been now? 
Gosh, I've been all around the world. I've been to Manland, I've been to Womanland, <laughs> as we all have. Yeah. All the lands. I've been to all the lands. I've been so excited as everyone has. I mean, it almost feels like we are in, like, yesterday's fish wrapping territory. And by almost, I mean definitely, clearly. Well, it's probably moved on. Well, it was only last weekend, but go on. It was on. only last weekend. <laughs> and as a person whose job it is to come here and talk about going to the movies, man, what a joy to try and buy tickets to either of those films yeah. and see sold-out session Box after sold-out session. records smashed. Yeah, delightful. Barbie, uh, as you were saying in, in our off-air time, Daniel, somewhat cultish, um, pulling ahead, <laughs> but Oppenheimer also doing us proud. We did a three our runtime, it's important to note, just less sessions of Oppenheimer has impacted its um, overall box office. So for the three-hour movie, it's really doing, you know, relatively strong business against Barbie. But, yeah, absolutely delightful. Also, my greatest nightmare, because PAX Cinemas, of course, means PAX Cinemas full of young people who do social media while watching movies, mm. including when the film's begin so I've had some had like a little bit of cinema rage in my Barbie viewing experience but generally it's been a grand old time. Someone ruffling with their like Malteser packet is like Charles playing comparison to like a bright blue screen. Literally the girl walked in in front sat down in front of me she was like 10 minutes late for the film pulled out her phone and started filming the screen for her TikTok. Where are the parents Simone? I know (laughs) I was the parent I was the beast in that scenario. Anyway so Vice obviously talked about the glory that is Barbie and I'm here to do Part two, The Glory is Oppenheimer, which I'm delighted to hear you've seen now. Yes. All three hours of it. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> so for anyone who <laughs> has not heard, Oppenheimer, uh, based on uh, an authorised biography of J. Robert Oppenheimer, known as the father of the atomic bomb, based on a book called American Prometheus that was released in 2005, Christopher Nolan's uh, latest work, obviously the great mind behind Inception and the Dark Knight, Cycle and Tenet, um, stars Killian Murphy, the extraordinary Irish actor who uh, people would probably know from Peaky Blinders best, or I think he played the Joker in the Nolan series, um, but finally getting like the role that this man has deserved for the past, I'm going to say, like 20 years, um, playing Oppenheimer. The film tracks this brilliant young scientist through the early stages of his career, through um, sort of influential encounters with physicists in uh, Cambridge and in, I think, the Netherlands, Um, and eventually his recruitment into the Manhattan Project or the Los Alamos Project, where uh, um, the US uh, felt itself to be in an existential race against first the Nazis and then Russia, to harness the power of atomic fusion and develop the first nuclear weapons um, with Oppenheimer at the lead of a, of a whole bevy of the most brilliant um, physics minds of his generation. And then uh, in the third act of the film, so you basically see young Oppenheimer, you see the development of the atom bomb, and then you see the complex conflict that evolved later in Oppenheimer's life around the devastation that he wrought um, in in the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki at the end of the Second World War, and also his pursuit by the House on American activities, his um, dressing down, the removal of his security clearances, political intrigue at the end of his career, um, 
that kind of complicated his own personal um, change position in terms of the morality of what he'd done. It's a big movie. <laughs> well, was it a lot? Was that too it much? Was, no, no, I'm just wondering, as you describe it, why is this a blockbuster as opposed to, say, Benedict Cumberbatch playing Alan Turing or some Winston Churchill biopic? Why this historical figure is breaking box office records? Because it's Nolan mm. yeah. and because he breaks all records and it is, I think, pretty universally... I mean, it's it's opening weekend. Everyone's pretty excited. But um, they're calling it the greatest film of his career. Mm. I think it's up there with Inception. Um, it is uh, narratively incredibly dense. The performances are very, very good. And I also think there's just that weird explosive effect... Being part of the Barbenheimer phenomenon has has added to the cachet of both films. But, yeah, at the core of it, he's a blockbuster filmmaker who makes incredibly um, complex, dense, original films that are very watchable and propulsive for their very long length. Uh, and I think that's why. Like, mm-hmm. he's just a master. Yeah. Um, and he's a master who wants to make blockbusters that are very intellectually rigorous films. Absolutely. Can I ask about your relationship with Nolan's films in the past? You mentioned Inception as another film that you particularly appreciated. Is that right? I absolutely love Inception. Uh, I I watch the Batman films. I do not have a deep emotional connection to them, but I appreciate his craft. I think he's a very muscular and masculine filmmaker for all that he is Mm. a very brilliant and privileged intellectual man. So I'm not like... I'm not, the, I'm not the guy on the Reddit forum being like Christopher Nolan is the second coming of Jesus, but mm. there's just no denying, like, you know, it, it's kind of a weird comparison, but, like, he's sort of the Spielberg of his generation in the sense that there's just no one that touches him in terms of his formal brilliance. So I'm glad the Oppenheimer for me kind of is bookending uh, Inception as being the two films that I'm most interested in, but like I'm so ready to go back in for a second viewing of this film. It really, I really, really enjoyed it. How did you feel about it? Pat? I look a bit, bit of a disclaimer. Like I probably saw it like after midday. Um, I was tired, hadn't Sleepy had a nap. The le- the runtime for me was it, it felt longer than three hours for me. Okay, um, just some of like just the narrative and the cutting between it sometimes felt harder than it needed to be. Like, I guess, like, when you speak to it being, like, like overtly masculine, I guess that began to weigh on me a little bit. Yeah, and that's fair. And the, the female characters were just paper thin, in my opinion. Like, and so that irritated me towards the end of, like, we've watched so long. And I felt like he was trying to... Um, make them a lot more complex than they were, like, than he'd given them screen time. Like, yeah. what is that test that I, oh, I can't remember, but there's it a test. The Emily Blunt does at oh. the end. Oh, but oh. the test of, like, if a female character talks to Oh, the Bechdel to, test. Yeah, the Bechdel test. Like, oh, it no. wouldn't have passed that. High fail. Uh, definitely yeah. not. High fail. So that kind of started to irk me towards the end. It felt like it, it just felt like a lot it's a and lot. a bit pretentious. And also a bit of the casting. It felt very old school to me, like the you, Matt Damons you, and Casey Afflecks and stuff like that. You are not alone. Yeah. <laughs> Many people have criticised the female characters, which are very much paper thin. Mm. Um, the 
I think that a lot of the characters are kind of sacrificed on the altar of the story. Yes, um, fair enough. And you think how fast you kind of whip through scenes that are really actually just about narrative progression. The only characters that are given any real substantive depth are Oppenheimer and then Robert Downey Jr.'s character, the the senator at the end, which people can figure out what that's about. But it's it's a it's a fair criticism. But yes, in saying that as well, like it's historical, it's fascinating, like a brilliant mind. It, it is such a complex, like he, he covers so much, you know, like, you know, the morality, the philosophy of it all. So again, I understand as well and yeah, yeah. sympathetic to that. I think it's a really valid position. I don't think everyone has to love it mm. and they're like good things to know going in. What did you think about, obviously, that much has been said about the fact that there's no CGI in the film? Mm. And for a film that is absolutely dominated and continues to dominate IMAX screens and has these two expanded presentations where the screen sort of literally gets bigger, super ultra 4K laser projections, biggest film canister in the world being delivered to Melbourne, people to watch it, well, and everywhere else where there's no <laughs> um, it's not actually It's not actually a really visual story. It's a really character-driven mm. story. There are just certain sequences where you get this... At- Nolan attempts to actually represent quantum physics and universal expansion, but I don't know if you need to be like yeah. in an IMAX. Not at all. It, a lot of the shots now thinking back are like really tight mm. and conversations like mm. back and forth, like you said, character-driven. Um, yeah, so, one, yeah, it, there's no like not an excess of huge expansive landscape shots. I will say also that while the representation of women has been criticised, the other main... I mean, the generally speaking, universal acclaim, right? Mm. There, I have seen another um, avenue of criticism, which is that there isn't enough in the film. Like, it's too ambiguous. Mm. And I think because Oppenheimer himself was really ambiguous about condemning uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki, about condemning... Um, the ego that drove the development of nuclear weapons, and there's this there's this um, tension in the film between uh, you know this like moral kind of ambiguity at the end, but this profound drive and sense of justice up to the point where they've made their big shiny bomb toy. Um, and some people said it's not good enough; it's not sufficient in this moment in history for us not to be more to, to have more of a critical lens over the, the, the titanic male egos that, that drove them just to see what mm. they could do, you know. But, contradicting myself, I did listen to a, one pretty good conversation with Nolan where he's like, you need to go back and watch it again because mm. it is pretty complex in the second half. Um, he couldn't misrepresent Oppenheimer's actual views. Oppenheimer never apologised for having a significant hand in killing some 200,000 Japanese people, largely civilians. He never apologised for it, although he fought to kind of repress the proliferation of nuclear weapons. But there is a lot in the second half of the film that implies... It's, I don't know, the interesting thing for me is, like, how where, where the male ego can take you, what you can justify to yourself in order to be the person on the cover of Time magazine and how we, the stories we tell ourselves to get us there and then how whether or not it's possible to claw back from that, whether you can ever redeem yourself after that. Mm. There's a lot in it. I suppose it makes – if it's ambiguous, then you can chat about it after. 
Yeah. I mean, it's it sounds incredibly meaty. Mm. I I think so. And I'm. It's the only thing is. I mean, I really loved it. And again, I'll be going back. But Nat, like, if if you, if you don't love it, that's three hours. Mm. You know what? You can always walk out. There are no rules. That's true. But you can't pull out your goddamn phone. <laughs> <laughs> true that. Okay, Christopher Nolan's Oppenheimer is everywhere. Simon, you bully. Thanks, heaps. Thanks. Triple R. So we have, we've completed the Barbie Heimer review appraisal movie portion um, with Simone coming in to do Oppenheimer. Vaishnavi obviously did an awesome review of Barbie, but I do, or Simone touched on it a little bit with the phone, the highs and lows of going to the actual cinema. Yes. And I did attend Barbie last night and I had a blast, but I did. I got in trouble at the cinema. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. It was okay. It was kind of a, a bit of a rush, to be honest. It was like a throwback to my youth in many ways, seeing that film. So, Did you used to get in trouble at the cinema? No, just, I don't know, just Barbie, just yes. like the doll. And, and then so, yeah, went with a massive group which I thought was going to be a nightmare as well. Like I know Jez used to talk about it as well. There's always that one friend who wrangles like the large group in, um, yeah, booking things in. There's always one taking the lead. And in this case it was my friend Greta who hosted the slideshow. Wow, Greta, to, and it such was, a good organiser. Oh, it was beyond comprehensive because she works in like motion graphics and stuff. She like did a whole stylized invite. But there was a big emphasis on not – to be late because they'd allocated us all to one ticket and so she's just like she wasn't coughing up the ticket she was just like I want you all there and we're all going in this has to happen on time this is how long it takes to park this is how long it takes to walk from the station so much admiration and respect for Greta yeah but she put so much emphasis on don't be late I was like are you going to be slightly disappointed I feel like if no one is running late, it kind of detracts from her warnings. I wonder. Mm. I wonder if that's what Greta, Greta was I thinking. said that on the way in. I go, God, you'll be disappointed if no one's late, like lack any drama. And I'm imagining she, Greta would be probably most satisfied if everyone conformed to the plan. Yeah, I think she was a little bit disappointed because everyone arrived on time, which I was shocked by. <laughs> I thought it was going to be texting from the seats, like it would be us who would be annoying the likes of Simone, where like right before it's starting, like we're here, we're row M, you know, <laughs> but, it, but it was completely fine. But where I got in trouble I know was, I was gonna say, so far, so good. the candy bar. Oh, <laughs> yeah, so you couldn't – I wanted to get a glass of wine and you couldn't take wine in to Barbie because it's a PG-rated film. I see. And we were quite early and so a friend a fair bit in head, ahead of me said, heads up, you can't – they ask you what movie you go to, just don't say you're going to Barbie um, if you want to get a drink. They're like, I just did it. Like, it's fine. And so you're conspiring out loud across the queue? <gasps> Not yet. Yeah, well, like, I just kind of swung past, done quite discreetly. Oh, I was like, yeah, yeah, okay. So I, I was dressed in pink, <laughs> painted my nails, and so I was like, okay, covered up all my pink, my <laughs> hair clips. I mean, it would have been pretty obvious, but my thought was no one cares. Like, it's a packed cinema. It's a Wednesday night, like, whatever. You're feeling optimistic at this yeah, point. Yeah, and... um. They were like, I'm like, can I have a chalk top and a glass of red? And they were like, yeah, what movie are you seeing? And I was like, Oppenheimer. And they're like, okay. And then they went about it. 
and then casually just dropped it like that yeah but my heart rate went up it's been a while like that's a throwback to when you were like a teenager if you ever tried to buy alcohol underage or just get in on a fake id which i did and so i was like this is kind of thrilling i kind of really quite enjoyed it and as I like went to pay, I'd painted my nails on the way in and I was like tapping and she's looking at me. And then everyone I'm seeing Barbie with is standing just to the left of me, like in a massive group. Oh, staring at you with expectant glee. Yeah. And so a few had got drinks if you hadn't. And um, I thought, no worries. And then I walked over to the group and was standing around waiting to go in and she wasn't having it. <gasps> she came over. In front of everyone, me and this other guy, and she's like, what are you two seeing? And we're like, Oppenheimer. We're standing wow, in this, like, with the story. a sea full of people dressed in pink. She's like, so you're seeing Oppenheimer with this group of Like, you're seeing Oppenheimer and everyone else is seeing Barbie, are they? And then she went on to interrogate our friends and they didn't know what was going on. And so they're like, are you all seeing Barbie? She's like, yeah, we're all in a group ticket. We're seeing Barbie. Wow. And we're standing there with these drinks. It was wild. This is an unfolding I, I scene for sure. I felt shame, but then I felt rebellious. It was such a wild mix of emotions. I think ultimately I really kind of enjoyed it. I mean, you didn't get that kick. <laughs> And look, I get it. it she, she's probably completely exhausted and they've been told in a meeting, this cannot happen. Like, I, I completely understand where she was coming from, there's being a, a burnt a, out yeah. customer service worker. I've been there. And there's a diagram printed out on the wall, which has telltale signs, people that say they're going to. Yeah. <sighs> but at the same time, it's just like, did you see? No, there's easy ways around it. It's like, these are packed sessions. There's no way she's going down for it. Um, yeah. So I doubled down and she's like, you have to drink it now. Like stood over us and like made us <gasps> scale our drinks in, in the life. <laughs> it was quite, it was quite funny. And in the midst of all of this, what was Greta thinking? I don't think she noticed. Okay. Uh, Yeah. And I was, I was actually a bit concerned because I was like, she's put so much work into getting everyone together. And now I've humiliated her here at the cinema. We're all dressed up. (laughs) And yeah, I was like, oh, she's going to think this is poor taste. Oh, indeed. Um, I'm I'm sorry to hear that all of this occurred last night. Yeah. Can I ask though, with the selection of the chop top as a slight detour, Mm. did you go for the Barbie chop top? No, they didn't have it. I don't think I saw it at the same cinema as you yeah so no i went for the peppermint red wine and sculling red wine right before it chopped (laughs) off that is not ideal this is nanny state isn't it that's stupid i know it's not the the uh, look i don't know but for god's sake a glass of red wine for a PG a film. night out with your friends yeah it was i know it was pretty wild and I was like, and then she's like, it's licensing reasons. Like, yeah, she gave us the thing. I get it. But it's like, but that doesn't even make sense. She's like, we don't have a license for you to drink it in the lobby. So it's like, I don't know, but it didn't add up. No, was, it's not. It's no one individual's fault. It's, mm. it's. But uh, I am surprised that Greta didn't draw up a contingency plan for well, yeah, if, exactly. PG alcohol consumption. <laughs> That's so true. Look, maybe she'll circulate yeah a debrief and it'll be mentioned. She there, really so is our J. Robert Oppenheimer. Oh, truly, in yeah. terms of organisation planning. Wait till I show you this. What she sent around is incredible. <laughs> Independently yours, Triple R. 
a treat for us all. Fee writes here to <laughs> review books. Morning, Fee. Good morning. <laughs> it's so nice to be here. Um, I am so excited to be here to talk about um, one of my favourite authors that I've only read one other book of, um, Anna Funder. Anna Funder, um, I've only read one other book of hers. I'm here to talk about Wifedom, um, but I read a book of hers called Stasi Land about 10 years ago, and I still think about that book about once a week. Really? Haven't read any of her other books, don't know why, um, <laughs> till this one came out and decided to pick it up and... Uh, now I'm here talking with you Amazing. fine folks. And before we get into the new book, what is it about Stasiland that stayed with you? Okay, so Stasiland is about the fall of the Berlin Wall and it's kind of like it's uh, Anna Funder goes over there and she interviews lots and lots of people from their experiences between East and West Germany and, um, and East and West Berlin. And in particular, she talks about the role of the Stasis, the secret police, and the influence that they had on people's lives and the fear that they instilled. And then also there was one particular story, and I haven't read it in 10 years, but this this story has stuck with me of these old women who are tracking their the people that have disappeared. So they've they've passed away for being taken by the police by the Stasi, and they're trying to track down what happened to them. And they are collecting. I've just totally segued into a Stasi land review, but they Sorry. are um, collecting shredded paper. So the Stasi kept incredible notes and dictated everything and. Um, all of their notes and files were uh, shredded and then burned. But the they were trying to burn so much paper at the end that all of the furnaces died. And so there's just bags and bags and bags of shredded paper. And these old ladies were sitting in a room filled with bags of paper, this kind of monumental task of shredding things to find out what happened to their loved ones. Mm. And I think about them all the time with that, that hope um, to drive and that drive to find out what happened to their loved ones, and I'm gonna I'm gonna pull it back. Um, Secret police also play a big role in Wifedom, her new book. I did it. I got there. Um, so this book, at first glance, it doesn't feel like this book is going to be initially about things like secret police, but it is about Eileen O'Shaughnessy, who is the wife of George Orwell. George Orwell in particular um, is has known for two particular works, um, Animal Farm and 1984, um, known for their, their specific um, experiences of political and um, kind of different uh, – social movements and what those things have an impact on the societies around them. And it's a biography, obviously, and it's created doing research that Funder did of reading all these other biographies of George Orwell. And then six newly discovered letters that Eileen was writing to her best friend. And they take place, those letters take place over a course of, um, you know, decades and, they seem to appear at huge monumental moments in Eileen's life. Um, and so you kind of track Eileen through these letters. So the letters are republished in full. And then um, Funder also pulls kind of a um, a fictionalised account of Eileen writing the letter, what might be happening around her at the time. So you kind of have a, a fiction element 
then you have the biography element. And then she's kind of like, I, I don't want to call Funda a gonzo journalist because she's not specifically inserting herself into events of the book because obviously it's historical and she can't like go to the Spanish Civil War. But um, she appears in the books. So she is um, – she talks about herself in first person. She talks about her experiences as a mother. There's a conversation with her daughter who's about 16 that appears in the book at one point um, and it includes all her reflections um, – I am obsessed with writers writing about writing. So she's reflecting on the process of writing, um, what it means to be a wife, what it means to be an author, because um, the reason why I found this book so fascinating is that Eileen's work has been essentially written out of Orwell's biographies and life because she was integral to most of his writing career. Um, and so... She's been written out because she was integral. Well, that is that is the question. Oh, okay. So she was um, his editor. His um, He would handwrite everything and then she would she would write it again, like she would type it up. Um, so she would edit everything. There is an argument that Animal Farm was her idea um, based on her experiences in the Spanish Civil War, which uh, no one else, including – no one else has really discussed her role in getting him out of the country. Um, and Orwell, he doesn't come off – great in this in this book um there's a lot of uh philandering which um is not great um and also a lot of indifference to Eileen's health and well-being um so we're looking at someone famous and iconic we're looking at the role and relationship with his wife um it's in the best interests of fans to perhaps downplay the role of the others around them to like highlight and increase the genius. Um, and a good example of that was probably the Spanish civil war in this book happens about a hundred pages in, and it was some of the most incredibly gripping writing. I mean, I know how the war ends, right. But I was still like, Oh, what's going to happen? Like, I know they got out of the country because, you know, he kept writing books you know, he hasn't, he hasn't written Animal Farm at this point. So I'm like, well, he's getting out somehow. Um, so so Orwell, Orwell decides to go over to fight against the fascists in the Spanish Civil War. He leaves Eileen in what's essentially a hovel in the UK. It's a shed with no insulation, no heat, no running water, an outside latrine that he um, always leaves to her to unclog. Fun job. Um, because Eileen writes about it. We know that. Um, he goes over and fights. She decides to go over as well to support his writing. She goes over, gets a job. She's living in the Hotel Continental um, in Barcelona, which is essentially when her life becomes a James Bond movie. She is being followed by secret police. Um, she is being tracked everywhere. She has to hide everything, double back. She's got fake movements. Um, at one point, there's warrants out for their arrests um, and she is in hiding, but also in direct sight. They haven't arrested her yet because they think that Orwell will return to the hotel to, to get her. Um, so while this is 
happening, she's like collecting passports, getting visas, getting train tickets to sneak out of the country. And so she was camped out in full view of the spies hunting her husband um, in the hotel and she's she's the direct reason that they survived and she's completely removed from the narrative of their survival and this book is what i would say a masterclass in discussion of narrative so her reflections on the the biography and work of Orwell and others so active and passive voice is huge in writing and it's one of those things that's kind of um, and until you start seeing it everywhere, it's missed. So um, a politician saying mistakes were made is passive voice. Active voice is I made a mistake. So we've just heard from that, that Eileen did all of these things to get them out of the country, directly responsible for their life and their survival um, in fear of like she is just the toughest person ever facing down fascist spies And the way it's written is um, like passports were required and we got out of the country as opposed to downplaying her work. And the thing that Funda reflects on in the book as she's reviewing Orwell's writing and then the biographer's writing is that Orwell would have handwritten this draft, given it to Eileen, and then Eileen would have typed it up. And we like the wondering of what Eileen was thinking to have her role in his work so removed and taken from this active active role that she she took into this kind of um, passive removal, and it's um, quite an interesting kind of grammatical trick. Um, I, I, I don't know if my students agree because I talk about active and passive voice all the time and I'm like, this is it, <laughs> you know, and you don't often hear it discussed, but it's so powerful and Orwell, who is aware of the strength and power of words, has erased his wife from his work. Um, and so too, of course, is yeah. Anna Funder aware of the power of language yeah. too and is interrogating this as well. Yeah, and that and her interrogation, she directly quotes other biographers. She's quoting Orwell, obviously, and the letters. The research is incredible. Um, and the fact that she's collated all of these things together, um, I'm waiting for, I don't know, some sort of Orwellian, that sounds darker than I intended it, um, fan-based back backlash you know i want to know what the scholars think of her work as of of funders work um and how people are reflecting on this because it's such a huge erasure that i've been teaching orwell for years and i had no idea and it is it is so gripping it is cinematic sounds extraordinary the way you describe it as a tremendous work of journalism of literature but it seems like it's also prompting a lot of conversations as well yeah yeah absolutely like the fact that um i know a number of schools um mine included are having it as like a book club book so you know people are reading this it's not on the text list we're just kind of uh, and I actually had nothing to do with it at my school. I just – people were like, we're going to have this book club book. And I was like, yes, <laughs> I can't wait to talk about this. Um, yeah, it is incredible writing. It's it's 400 pages, but I flew through it. I had to actually actively slow myself down. Was there any bitterness recorded at the time or – um, it, it's, it seems not, not, um, I don't, I didn't recall any bitterness 
from the text. There's a lot. No, from, no, not not from the text. <clears throat> sorry, from the from Eileen. the invisible wife. Yeah, yeah. Look, uh, it's unclear. It's unclear, um, and that's kind of like, is that the role of of the wife to be passive to support and stand behind her man? Amazing, wifedom. Anna Funder, uh, Penguin Random House. Beautiful. Fee right. Thank you. Thank you. Triple R. Bloom is the new musical comedy that weaves together romance, rebellion and a residence choir at the understaffed aged care facility Pine Grove. Presented by Melbourne Theatre Company and Arts Centre Melbourne, Bloom's book and lyrics are by Tom Gleisner, its music by Katie Weston and direction by our next guest. Dean Bryant's credits include Hubris and Humiliation for the STC, Giustino for Pitchgut Opera and the STC and MTC co-production Fun Home for which he received the Sydney Theatre Award and 2023 Green Room Award for direction. Now here to tell us about Bloom following its world premiere over the weekend. The theatre maker joins us now. Dean, welcome to Breakfasters. Thank you. Thanks for having me. How was the opening? The opening was really exciting, actually. It was um, kind of one of those performances that you just knew from the first few seconds that the actors were totally on song with it, that the audience was there to hear it. And it was actually one of the most kind of fun opening nights (laughs) I've sat through for myself, because often I'm so nervous, you're like, how's this bit going? How's this bit going? And I felt like I could just sit back and watch it. Excellent. Uh, and what is your role? How do you describe this process that you've been through bringing Bloom to life? Sure. The role of the director on a new musical especially, sort of, it's all the stuff you'd expect, you know, casting the actors, staging the show, helping the designers come up with the look of the show. But on something like this, you're actually on the project a lot further in advance. So I've been working with Tom and Katie, the writers, for at least a year now on, you know, let's try and talk about this. Let's move this to here. I think we need a different song that does this, like that kind of guidance. So it's great to see it come to fruition finally. And what excites you? And does the excitement come on a daily basis when you're putting this together? Or what are are the big moments that make your involvement scream with fun? Uh, I think it's getting it to work like and that happens at various stages across the whole process moments where you're like oh what something is not right here and trying different things and then suddenly feeling like the emotion locks in or a story beat becomes clear or or you have an idea for a for a moment that will be much better than what's there that kind of stuff is what makes it really worthwhile Mm. and what about the subject matter is it the darker it is is it juicy for you as a theater maker it's like well let's make this fun in an aged care facility. Yeah, it's interesting because my job is, especially as a director, is to try and figure out what the best version of what the writers want to do. So, you know, when I knew knew in advance um, before I read it that it was going to be set in an aged care home and I could tell immediately what the interest was going to be because, of course, we all know about the travesties of aged care. So... But I also knew that it was written by one of the writers of The Castle and Working Dog are famous for satirical comedies. So I thought, look, it's obviously going to be a comic approach. And when it came to me, I thought, okay, let's find how much depth we can sneak into this show about aged care, which is still a musical comedy and still primarily has as its concerns the celebration of community and also joyousness. But we also can't shy away from the fact that there's a lot to say about aged care. Mm. Indeed. Could we ask you about, I suppose, the musical dimension mm-hmm. of this uh, particular production? You've spoken before about the magic that happens between the spoken word and the sung word. And I was just wondering if you could tell us a little bit about how you're telling these stories through music in bloom. Sure. Uh, 
Katie wrote the music, Katie Weston and Tom the lyrics. And basically because the age range of the characters in the show is as young as 21 and as old as 82, the music kind of represents that. Like music primarily um, tends to capture us at our uh, the prime of our lives. So, of course, the prime of most of the residents' lives is actually like the 70s and the 80s where they're at their most, you know, functional and vivid in their lives. And then, of course, the younger people are listening to whatever younger people listen to now. So it feels like it's kind of a pop rock score. And then um, Anne Edmonds, the stand-up comedian, is playing the kind of um, horrible neoliberalist manager of the aged care home. So she speaks in pure kind of Broadway villain musical speak. So all of her songs are essentially like the sort of songs you might think that Mel Brooks would write. <laughs> what are your favourite musicals that you've, you draw on for this? Just Because I imagine it would be very exciting to be part of a new musical from mm-hmm. the ground floor. What... What do you reach for for inspiration? Sure. I mean, I've always loved musicals. It's what I started out um, writing and directing for that matter. So for me, the two big gateway writers were Andrew Lloyd Webber and Stephen Sondheim, who are, you know, who were contemporaries their whole writing lives, but completely opposite. So I think I liked, you know, the sort of stirring drama of an Andrew Lloyd Webber show and the kind of ability to harness spectacle. And then, of course, the intelligence and classiness and ambivalence of Stephen Sondheim's work is completely fascinating and timeless. So I think when I try and marry one of my own writing works or someone else's work, it's about going, what can the songs do that hasn't been seen before, hasn't been experienced before, and how can they either unlock story, character, or most importantly, emotion in a musical? Mm. And then how close to opening night was it, were you wrangling the beast straight up <laughs> Till opening <laughs> It's funny because Tom is obviously hugely experienced in writing, has been doing it for decades with the rest of the working dog writers, and... Um, we'd done massive rewrites every single step of the way. We've done workshops, all of that kind of stuff. And he said, look, I'm hoping to give you a finished draft on first day of rehearsals um, and then it'll be locked. I'm like, okay. That's a lovely, that's a lovely I was idea. Like, what a fantasy. <laughs> yeah, because I was curious about that. Obviously with his background, like as you mentioned, you know, mainly in film and TV, did that, did you, how did that affect the process, I guess, for you and how you would typically approach? Sure. Yeah. Um, It was a bit of an education in terms of um, basically in television, you tell a lot of the story visually, Mm -hmm. which of course you do on stage as well, but we don't have close-ups. So a lot of um, the finessing of the work was actually going, this is a moment that without a close-up actually doesn't exist. It needs to be done in a dialogue line or it needs to be done in some way that the back row of the audience could actually experience this moment to understand it. And also TV is primarily made up of short scenes and short sentences Mm -hmm. and stage because just the effort it takes to get on stage and move around a big space, we tend to tell things, even in a musical, in longer scenes and in longer kind. There has to be a reason to come on stage because it's such an effort to change the stage picture every time. So it was about sort of... um, taking a whole lot of little scenes and sometimes making them into bigger scenes, uh, getting rid of moments altogether. If you're like, this is a one-joke moment, like 
if you can squeeze that joke into a bigger scene, yay, we can keep it, but it's not going to... We're not going to understand why we even bothered looking at it mm-hmm. on stage. So, yeah, it was taking natural instincts and putting it into just essentially a new form. Yeah, wow. What about the set in terms of uh, people's association with places like this? Mm. I suppose they can be... and The musical is leveraging maybe the ambiance or even the depressing nature that we all bring mm. to those settings. How do you make that set sing yeah totally versus the reality of what we're used to it was a good question um because i didn't think the piece would work unless it was grounded in reality i'm like if it feels like a fantasy people will just they won't take anything seriously in it and they won't be moved but so it, so it felt like to me it does need to look like what we expect an aged care home to look like whether that be you know a shiny industrial clean one or a like repurposed place that's been changed um but it's a musical like we sing it's already a heightened theatrical world so it was very clear as well that it needed to be a space that not only felt heightened but allowed for joy and change because that's what the piece was about and that's what musicals are about so i was very lucky in that dan barber the set designer has this incredible eye for the detail of reality but also this kind of warped visual sense. So he created a kind of standard common room of an aged care home but with this forced perspective so all the doors get smaller as it goes back, the ceilings slope down. So it's all the details of a real kind of one of those multi-purpose buildings that we spend a lot of our you know admin lives in but so hyper-theatrical in what it can do that you go, oh, I feel like I'm in a theatre space, not a real space. Mm. And can you tell us about the cast in this space and your relationship with them and how that's grown? Yeah, well, the cast are, you know, the cast are everything in this show. It's a... I kind of said to Tom early on, you know, this is essentially a workplace comedy. Like, this is about disparate personalities that do not choose to be together but are forced to be together and find common ground. Obviously, that's funny. Um, But what those sort of shows are about is a massive ensemble all being together all the time, talking all the time. So they're very hard to stage those scenes because you're like, oh, there's still 10 people on stage. (laughs) But once you get it working, it's this incredible dynamic and energetic kind of build all the time because they keep rallying each other. So um, I was very lucky. I cast a whole mix of... um, people who have massive experience in musicals like literal decades. Like John O'May, for example, was the male lead in Evita when it was first done in Australia. And now he's, you know, in his mid-70s and contributing to the show in that respect. And then we also had a lot of young people like Vidya Makin, who plays the youngest carer in it, who just toured for two years in six, the, the musical. So they brought that kind of musical knowledge. And then you had people like Frankie J. Holden, who just come on bringing decades of being beloved to the Australian public that just instantly does so much in telling you, oh, I understand what we're supposed to be taking from this world. And then, of course, you throw Anne in, who only knows stand-up comedy and brings this kind of bizarre electric charge because she's so wild on stage and so used to that kind of craziness of being a stand-up comedian. And I suppose the pill in the dog food of it all is the interplay between generations, Mm. which you've actually been living uh, do, do, do you hope that Australia does change? I'm not arguing that a musical comedy sets out to change attitudes, but your experience of working with a cast as diverse in ages as this, what is that something that we could maybe emulate? 
It does seem unusual to me that we should all know this because we experience it our entire lives, which is that when we make a community, everyone is a lot happier because of it. And we work, when we work towards a common goal, we all feel better for it. Um, so the piece definitely just explores that both just by watching it happen on stage and the actual story that occurs. But I really don't know, like, until we face up to this, you know, thing that all of us have grown up in the Western culture of, you know, throw money at the problem but not enough, get the scariness of death and dying and old age out of the family home and kind of out of sight, like until we take both individual, you know, what can I do to fix my small community and also force the government to, you know, <laughs> prioritise a graceful exit from life, I, I don't know what could change. Mm. Well, these issues are explored implausibly humorously <laughs> uh, in the new musical comedy Bloom. It's at the Playhouse until the 19th of August and tickets are on sale at mtc.com.au where all the information is. Dean Bryant is the director. How was the after party? It was actually really good. It was fun. <laughs> so many comedians at it, of course. They all came out to see it. <laughs> Free drinks. Then. Free drinks and comedians. Dean Bryant, thanks very much. Thank you. Triple R. You've been listening to a podcast of the best bits of The Breakfasters, which is the Monday to Friday breakfast show broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia. Feel free to get in touch with Breakfasters via Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or via the Triple R website.